you to open your Bibles up to Colossians 2. We are finishing the chapter today. As you turn to Colossians 2, I want to ask some questions. I want to ask if you've ever found yourself asking these types of questions. Why do I keep failing in my personal pursuit of holiness? Why do I keep falling in sin instead of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Why do all of my good intentions and best laid plans of pursuing holiness so often end in disaster? Why, even though I desire to do what is right, do I end up doing what is wrong? Have you ever found yourself considering or asking those types of questions? For me, those questions generally come at late at night. Usually I've already gone to bed, I've fallen asleep, but maybe uh, like 15 minutes later, something wakes me up. And in, in struggling to fall back asleep, in the silence, in the darkness, it's totally quiet. My mind starts just evaluating my entire day, evaluating my week, thinking through all of the roles and responsibilities that God has called me to. And I start considering, how am I doing? How am I doing as a dad to my children? Am I accomplishing my role as a husband to my wife? Am I succeeding in my call as a pastor? Am I living as a Christian? Am I walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Maybe you're different, but at least for me, I usually don't get a passing grade. I start thinking through all those things and I'm like, man, what I want the measure of holiness that I want to have displayed in my life, where I am right now doesn't match where I want to be. You might be like me, or maybe those thoughts come to you in other ways. Maybe it's after reading a book that sets a glorious vision of what your walk with God should be. Maybe you read something and you're like, yeah, that's what I want to look like. Maybe it's after you've heard a very convicting sermon where the Holy Spirit said, this is for you. Maybe you can think back to maybe a time that you went to a camp service and there was that one message and you're like, man, this needs to be different. Where I am right now does not match where I want to be. I'm just going to be frank. This message is for believers. Colossians is written to believers. And if you are a believer in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is active in your life, every single one of us should have something that is pricking our conscience right now. Something that's coming to mind of, yeah, that's the area where my holiness, my life is not matching the image of Christ. None of us have arrived at a level of holiness where we are the perfect representation of Christ. All of us have some way in which our holiness is still lacking where we've in some way failed. So what do we do 
when we see that where we are is not where we are supposed to be. What is the natural progression we pursue? If I'm here and I want to get there, what do we inevitably start formulating in our mind? A plan. We consider how is it that we can achieve what we desire? I can't tell you how many times late at night when I've been confronted by my failures that I've progressed into making a plan. Tomorrow, I will. Tomorrow, I won't. I wouldn't be surprised if you do something similar. After reading that book with the glorious vision of what life could be, after that message that convicted you of how you want to change, after that sin you committed that you had already promised a thousand times, I will never do that again. In those moments, what do we do next? This is my plan. This is what's going to be different about tomorrow. Once you've realized, once we've realized where we are isn't where we want to be, don't we start making a plan of what's going to be different? And, and please understand, on a certain level, that's really good. In many ways, that's the goal of Colossians. If we could paraphrase what we've already seen in Paul's words, it's this. Colossians, you're doing well. I'm encouraged by the growth I've seen. But there's still more for you to do. This journey is meant to take you further. I want you to be presented mature in Christ. I want you to stand before God as holy and blameless and above reproach. I want you to grow and increase as you bear every good fruit. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So that desire that we have to progress in holiness is good. A desire to make changes in order to accomplish that is good. If we don't change anything, then we're going to stay right where we are. But then we go back to our question. So why do we keep failing? Why do the plans we formulate often fall in failure? It's a hard question. But it's a necessary question. What is the definition of insanity? Keep doing the same thing, expecting different results? We keep on trying to come up with these plans, and at least for me, a lot of my track, track record, when I think of the decisions I make late at night, when I feel that weight of, this is not where I want to be, I'm not that successful with the plans that I've made. Why is that? Our passage this morning is going to provide us an answer. In our passage, we will see there is a reason why our plans and pursuits of holiness often end in failure. Now, if you thought I was going to make you wait until the end to give you why that is, I'm not going to. I'm going to put it right out in front of us right now. It's very simple. The reason why our plans fail is because they rely on us and not on Christ. When our plans are man-centered, they are self-focused, they will always inevitably fail. 
The plans need to be based on the foundation of Christ. That's been the theme of Colossians. It's all about Christ. But before you check out, because if you're thinking, okay, I've got it. Thanks for the answer. Now that I know that, I'll be sure not to rely on myself. It's a little more complicated than that. Let me encourage you to stick with me because this problem is trickier than we would think and it's harder to avoid than we might expect. Here's our big idea. Our failure is guaranteed if we rely on ourselves instead of Christ. Our failure is guaranteed if we rely on ourselves instead of Christ. Let's read through the passage, starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Before we jump directly into the passage, I, I, let's just remember a little of what we've seen so far. If you remember a few weeks ago, we saw that we can pretty much divide the book of Colossians into three main sections, three main ideas. And, and I want to see if we can remember them together, and I'll give you a hint. They all start with the letter T. You got it, Billy. The, the first part, the first section of the book of Colossians, Paul is presenting something to the Colossians. What does Paul want the, the Colossians to know? What is he presenting them that starts with T? Truth. He wants them to know truth, but it's a specific truth. It's a truth according to Christ. Who is Christ and what has he done? This is the truth that he wants them to know. This is the foundation that they must stand on. So that's what we saw in the first section of all of chapter one, moving into chapter two. It's all about Christ. Now, Paul starts that there. And, and, and the question is, why is Paul presenting that truth? What does he hope it will lead to? What is the third section that we're going to see? What does the hope, the knowledge of truth will produce? Transformation. It's not just an empty knowledge. It's, just, it's not just a love of wisdom. What he hopes is this truth is meant to produce transformation. This is where we are. This is not where we're supposed to be. That's where we're supposed to be. And this truth is meant to hold our hand and guide us into transformation. But in between those two sections, we have the section that we're in today, which we're actually finishing today, which is the problem that Paul says, wait a second, if, if this problem comes in, it's going to disrupt this natural progression. So what do we call this middle section? It's the what? It's the threat. There's a threat that has come into 
the Colossian congregation, there is something that is going to stop this process. And what is that problem? It's something that would cause us to not stay with Christ, but to depart from him. And if we depart from the truth, that transformation is never going to happen. And so Paul, knowing that this threat is happening among the the congregation, knowing that there are those who would say, you need to trust in more than Jesus, do it according to your strength, or you need to trust in less than Jesus, you don't really need a Jesus, figure it out on your own. Whatever option you're doing, it's wrong. It's going to lead to failure. You need just Jesus. And so Paul knows that threat, and he addresses it by first talking about the truth. But we come then to this threat, and this morning we're actually finishing up this section. Next week, we're going to begin looking at the transformation. So what element of the threat does Paul expose in our passage? Let's look at at Paul's big question, his burning question for the Colossians, looking at verses 20 through 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations. Sentence continues, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Now, for those of you who enjoy grammar, and I know there are some of you who do, how many sentences are those first three verses? 20, 21, and 22. Say it loud so I can hear. It's just one. Now, Paul does this a lot. He has very long sentences. This is by no means his longest sentence, but it's a long sentence. And sometimes when we have these long sentences, we can look at it and say, okay, well, we start parsing it all out and we just take it all bit by bit and we miss the main part. This is where diagramming, another dirty word for a lot of you who are in in school right now, but that diagramming can actually be really helpful. If we were to boil this down, What's the actual main part of this sentence? Why do you submit to regulations? If we're going to boil down this sentence, if we want to understand what this sentence is saying, that's the question. Why do you submit to regulations? Everything around that question is leading to emphasizing it. It's making it even more surprising of like, wait a second. Yeah, why are we doing that? If all of this is true of everything else that Paul is supplying. So if we boil it down, why do we submit to regulations? Now, the question is, is Paul talking about all regulations? Does this verse give credence to anarchy? Hey, Paul says, like when he's asking, why do you submit to regulations? He's giving us an ability that we're done. No, as we heard John pray earlier, he prayed for our government. We know in other passages of scripture, we are still called to submit to our rulers and authorities. And so Paul is not saying, you know what? All regulations, they're all gone. Now, he has a specific type of regulation in mind. This is why we need the rest of Paul's sentence. So what regulations is Paul referring to? Look look at your passage, and we're going to just highlight a few of them. Because he actually 
gives different names, but they're all referring to the same regulations. The first category, he says, is the elemental spirits, or rather, you could also, it could also be translated elementary principles of the world. It's the regulations that demand that we do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's regulations according to human precepts and teachings. It's regulations that are ultimately, as we will see in verse 23, self-made religion. All of those terms fit into the same category. Okay, they're synonyms here. So that gets us closer to understanding which regulations Paul is referring to. But I'm going to venture a guess that if you were to leave here thinking, okay, the, el- the regulations I will no longer hold to are the elemental spirits of the world, I don't think it's going to change your life much. We need to unpack this a little bit more to understand what this is saying. What do all of these terms have in common? What is the source of all these regulations? Man. It is the elemental. It is the earthly. That's us. It is these rules and regulations that we have created. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It is a self-made religion. It is according to human precepts, human teachings. The regulations that Paul is concerned about are the regulations that man has made. Now that gets a little complicated for us. Because, and this is starting to point us into a direction of, wait a second, why do those plans when I'm lying down at night and can't sleep, why do so many of them fail? Because so many of them are just man-made. So Paul asks this question, if we go back, why do you submit to regulations? Now, Now rather than me just jumping to the answer, I want you to try to answer it for yourself. Why do you submit to regulations? It's, it's a little surprising for us because for a people who struggle so much to follow rules, we really love making them. We love making rules for everything. When I, at times where I realize, man, that, that number on the scale, I don't love it. And, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make rules. Hannah, you, don't let me ever do this. Oh, and we're going to do this. And it's, it's all of these rules and systems that we put in place and hoping that that will take us where we want to be. But why do we submit to regulations? Why, why is that for you? Let me ask you this. When we started the message and we considered the times we have perceived our lack of holiness and formulated a plan, How often did your plan include a regulation? How often was that some element of your plan? Tomorrow I won't. Tomorrow I will. I will never. I will always. From now on, when that temptation comes, which I always fail in, I will fill in the blank. Have you done that? Have you come up with personal regulations like that? See, we we all do this. 
But verse 23 is what's going to give us the answer that we're looking for. Look at verse 23. These, so these regulations have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, Paul's giving us two reasons why we submit to these regulations. What's the first reason? It looks wise. It looks like a good plan. I don't think any of us have formulated regulations thinking this is never going to work, 100% certainty that this is going to fail. No, we make plans thinking this is going to work. Finally, I've unlocked the secret that's going to keep me from that sin. Finally, I've unlocked the secret that's going to cause me to be holy. It appears wise. That's why we submit to regulations. The second reason is because we think it will stop the indulgences of the flesh. That's our desire. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to be holy. And so I'm thinking this is what's going to stop that. And so we follow and submit to these regulations. Let me press the pause button here real quick. Don't misunderstand me to think that we should have no plans and that we should never have personal limitations in our pursuit of holiness. Often, there is wisdom in personal limitations. I'm going to tell you right now, I got off of social media a couple months back. I think my account still exists because Hannah sometimes sells things through my Facebook account, but I haven't been on it in months. Is that sinful to be on social media? No, but it wasn't helpful for me. Now, if I looked at that and said, that's what's going to make me holy, that would be a problem. If I was saying, this is the principle, this is the process, that would be an issue. But what I'm looking at and saying, wait a second, this is no longer helpful for me. It's pulling me away from Christ rather than pushing me towards him. And so there are times where we can have regulations. And we're going to work more on figuring out what those regulations should look like later. But don't misunderstand me to think that there should be no plans Chapter 3, we're going to have a long list of what we might call regulations. Paul is going to charge the Colossians to avoid many sins, to put on holiness. But there's a type of regulation that is not helpful. That's what we are addressing here. I think all of us can attest the times where we sought to make regulations and they did nothing for us. Rather, they made the problem worse. That's what Paul is addressing here. Okay, so don't think here that I'm giving liberty for Christian moral anarchy. Nope, we are totally liberals now. We don't care about anything. And I mean liberalism in the sense of that there are no rules, there are no regulations. No, scripture gives us elements that we are to follow. Okay, so unpause. Let's go back to verse 20. It says this. This is his first category. He gives three different facets to his question, three different ways in which we can look at this question of why do you submit to regulations to make it seem absurd. The first element of why it's absurd is this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Remember, these three verses are just one long sentence and all of them are connected to that big question, why do you submit to regulations? So... We could look at that first 
phrase and, and rephrase it like this. Why do you submit to regulations if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world? So that's the question. Well, let's look into that. When Paul says if, that could also be since. It assumes the condition of if is positive. It's like saying, if with Christ you died, which you did, why? We know we have died with Christ because earlier in verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul talked about us being buried with Christ. So what is this death Paul is talking about? It's what happened at the moment of our salvation. Again, this is talking to believers. This message is for believers. If you're wondering, if you're here, you're not a Christian, and you're wondering why you can't pursue holiness, it's a different reason. It's very similar. It's because you too are looking for a man-centered, a different solution apart from Christ. But Paul here is talking to believers. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul further explains and confirms this, this moment of death in Romans 6, Romans 6, 3 and 4. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into, in, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we placed our faith in Jesus, the old passed away. Our flesh that was dead in its sin was buried. Our sins were nailed to the cross. Part of that process was that we died to the elemental spirits or principles of this world. What are we talking about here? It's the man-made methods that seek salvation. Before we came to Christ, we had all of these ideas. Well, if I'm just a good person, if, if the scale is tipped where I do more good things than I do bad things, that is what will save me. No, we died to those lies. But this is, what elevate, this is what elevated the absurdity of the question. If we die to those lies, why do we still submit to those regulations? What we need to understand before we move on to the second facet is I want us to realize that what Paul is using as the first defense against the lies of human regulations is our salvation. Paul is taking it back to the gospel. Too often we wrongly consider that the gospel is only the starting point. That, well, I started with the gospel, but now I'm moving on and, and getting past that. That's not the process. See, the gospel is what we believed. We placed our faith in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And that is our moment of salvation. Paul's saying that this happened for you, but that continues, the good news continues not just through our salvation, but also our sanctification. 
If you're not familiar with that term of sanctification, it's the process of being made holy. If we can think about this as as different sequences of time, our salvation, what happened there is a once and for all time, a position that is granted to us. At the moment in which I placed my faith in Christ, I was declared righteous for all time. That is my position in Christ. He says, I am holy. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But as we are still living in this fallen world, does our practice match our position? Does my walking with God look like who God says I am? It doesn't, right? Everyone with me on that? Like anyone here thinking that you are walking and talking exactly like Jesus? No? Okay, good. It'd be heresy if you did. Our position though is before Christ, in Christ. But our practice is that we don't walk like Christ. And so that's the process of sanctification, So if we could think about sanctification, it's the process where our practice matches our position. And that's an ongoing process of we become more and more like Jesus. So why does Paul take it back to salvation? Because the power that saved us must be the power that sanctifies us. If you think that you attain salvation through your own strength, I have bad news for you. You're not saved. If you think that through your own work, your own striving by being a good person or whatever other regulation you can think of, if you think that is the reason you are saved, you're wrong. The good news, though, is that you can place your faith in Christ alone and receive that, not to your own merit, not to your own credit. All sufficient merit is given to you from Christ. But now when we understand that and we think, no, Christ alone, faith alone, we step over into this process of sanctification and we think, by me alone. And it's wrong. And we're going to fail. Our failure is guaranteed if we rely on ourselves instead of Christ. So then Paul continues and he says this, as if you were still alive in the world. So if we were to rephrase that, why do you submit to regulations as if you were still alive in the world? What's the implication of the question? We are not still alive to the world. We died with Christ. The ways of this world are not our ways. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are no longer citizens of this kingdom. We don't follow the same rules and regulations we once did because we know they are meaningless. We are now under new management. So if that's true, why do we keep following those rules? Well, let me illustrate this. We, we are blessed to live in a, a country with many freedoms. And we know of countries with virtually no freedoms. 
So imagine one of these countries that has no freedom whatsoever, and there is a citizen of that country. When they wake up, what they eat, what they do, what, how they spend their time, everything is according to the regulations that are given to them according to that country. But then one day, by no credit of their own, they are rescued from that domain and placed into the kingdom of freedom where there are still rules and regulations, but instead of the rules and regulations being of no value, these rules and, rules and regulations are of utmost value. They are for that citizen's good. But now imagine the next morning that citizen wakes up and he lives exactly according to his former regulations. He does exactly what he used to be told to, what to do. He eats what he used to eat. He sleeps at the time he was told to sleep. Is he really a citizen of this country? He's still living like a citizen over here. And, and so Paul is saying, why? As if you were still alive to that kingdom. You've been transferred out. You are no longer citizens of the domain of darkness. You are citizens of the kingdom of his beloved son. Do we see the absurdity that Paul is emphasizing? Paul's asking us, why are you still living as citizens of the domain of darkness? This is what we do. We follow the rules of the world. We follow man-made methods, hoping to attain a holiness that is only found in Christ. If we continue to live as citizens of the domain of darkness, it will only lead to failure. His third element is this, according to human precepts and teachings. So why do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? Well, what are these human precepts and teachings? Do not taste. Do not touch. Do not handle. All of these things have no power in and of themselves. That's what the next clause is saying. When it says that these things all perish as they are used, do we really think that, that food that you eat and no longer is food has the power to make you holy? It's powerless. It's dead. It can't have the power that the living God has. Food never resurrected from the dead. See, it's only Christ. We, we need to understand here that, that this means, I, I know that many of you have watched the, the, the counseling video that many of us want to sometimes use. Just stop it! That doesn't work. Don't eat it! Don't touch it! Don't handle it! And we can also put in the same category, just do it! Nike. That also isn't going to work. Why? Where is the hope put for those regulations? Me. You just do it. You don't do it. We don't have that power. We can even be given the law of God, the law of Moses. Did anyone become holy through that law? No, what it revealed was their unrighteousness, not their righteousness. And so all of these questions are looking 
that this is not going to work. There's a, a strong emphasis within Christianity to approach everything as a, in a formulaic way and a humanistic way. Being formulaic and humanistic is always going to fail. That's the elemental spirits of the world. That's the world's process. Just come up with the right system. Do it in your own strength. It will never, ever work. It's okay to have a formula for the removal of the flesh if that formula is Christ. Just Jesus. So then Paul exposes the lie in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. That's a little surprising, right? They have the appearance of wisdom. You remember that warning where I said, don't check out? Yeah, don't check out because this is really hard to see. And quite frankly, there will be times where you will have two individuals where externally it looks like they are doing the exact same thing and yet one is doing it according to the elemental spirits, doing it in their own strength and one is doing it through Christ. And one is going to fail and one is going to find grace in Christ. And so we need to understand that it's not just something where we can just make a list of saying, do this, don't do that, do this, oh, avoid these things. No, that's exactly the human way. It's wisdom. They have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. It's not true religion. And asceticism. Asceticism is this, this extreme humility. I'm not worthy. Problem is, do you know what all of these are in severity to the body? It's pride. See, extreme humility, oh no, I'm, I, I'm, just, I'm not gonna even do that. I'm not even gonna, I'm not even what we, Pastor Billy's pa, uh, passage from last week, I won't even pray to God. Let me pray to the angels. I am not worthy. When we don't do things the way God has told us to do it, what is that? It's Pride. Even if we're thinking, no, God, I know you told me to do this, but I'm not worthy to do it, so I'm going to do that. What are we saying? God, I know best. I know the better way to do this. God, I know you told me that I have this liberty in you, but that's too much for me. Who do we think we are? Even as we're saying we're less, we're actually presenting ourselves as more because I know better than God Almighty. They have the appearance of wisdom, but this is the true and final nail in the coffin. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let me give one pause and aside real quick right here. We need to be very careful in how we are addressing this with other people. It is very easy for us to point fingers with a passage like this and say, oh, I know someone who is following all the regulations. Oh, they make all of these different rules. Should that be addressed? Yeah, Paul's addressing it. But, but sometimes we also link motive to it. And we say, they are so proud and arrogant and they think they are better than everyone. No, they might just be tricked in thinking it's wise. They might be fooled into thinking this will stop the indulgence of, the, of their flesh. We need to be gracious towards them. 
That's where, John, uh, where Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 is set, talks of always responding to outsiders with graciousness, speech that is seasoned with salt. Be very careful when, when we go into uh, groups and start talking about all this. We, we actually had this discussion in our community group where, where sometimes it is we just throw all the stones at the legalists, not understanding that we ourselves are being legalistic in that moment. But we do want to tell them that their way is wrong. Why? Because they're living according to the law and not grace. And grace is greater. There is something better for them. But we see this last part. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See how much, when we talked about at the beginning, when we talked about we just keep failing and failing and failing, what are we, what are we realizing is true? This verse. Understand, there are times where we can still actually be doing the right thing and fail because we still have a sinful flesh. So don't, just because it failed doesn't mean the problem was the plan. It might be the problem was with you. But sometimes we also have to realize the problem was with the plan. Oh, I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to put this accountability program on my computer. That's going to do it. Have you addressed the heart? No, no, I don't, I don't need to address the heart. I just need this accountability program. Okay, let me, let me know how that works for you. See, what I found is that my flesh is incredibly creative. I don't need much to sin. In fact, I don't need anything. How many times where I've thought, you know what? Life is so stressful. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Let me just go on vacation. What's the problem with vacation? I take me with me. I get to vacation. I'm like, shoot. That means the problems wasn't the church or people. The problem was me. Oh, man. That's not comfortable to realize. But we need to understand that these, the problem that we're seeing with the plan is a plan that's made on man. What is the only thing that can stop the indulgence of the flesh. Well, verse 11 that we saw two weeks ago. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by what? Putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now that might be terms that you're not familiar with, but this is what it's saying. This isn't something external. This is an internal heart transformation. The only thing that will stop the indulgence of the flesh is not external. It's internal. It's the transformation of our heart by the work of Christ. Now understand, we might still use supplemental solutions. I already told you, I'm off social media. But that's supplemental what really needs to happen, the solution is internal. My heart needs to be transformed by the circumcision of Christ. The flesh needs to be divided from me. And that's not something that happens externally. And so when you're thinking through plans and you're thinking through what, is, what am I going to do to, to actually pursue holiness... Here's the big question. It's all regard, regarding the threat. Is your solution 
pointing you to Christ or taking you away from Christ? If your solution is, I can do this. I'm going to do this in my own strength. You're going to fail every time. But if your solution is, God, I want to walk in your strength. And God, I am so weak that I can't handle this. I need you. So we've discovered why we keep failing, but how do I not fail? To answer that question, you're going to have to come back next week. But I'll give you just a little bit of a preview. It's the beginning of of, of chapter three. Seek what is above, set your mind on what is above. And then he gives the list of regulations. Notice the progression. First Christ, through his power, through his strength, therefore, put off, put on. I'm excited for next week. I'm excited to be able to see this idea of, of where we're going of, because I don't want to be here. I don't want to be unholy. I want to be holy. But the solution is never going to be in my own strength. Externally, the plans can look very similar, but it matters where we are placing our hope. Where is our hope in our rules and regulations? Is it that we will do those in our own strength or is it that we will, that the strength of Christ will be supplied? See, our failure is guaranteed if we rely on ourselves instead of Christ. And so let me ask you, why do you submit to regulations? Don't submit to regulations. What do we submit to? Christ. That's who we submit to. See, our success is guaranteed if rather than relying on ourselves, we rely only on Christ. Let's stand and sing a new song for us. And one of the terms in this song is is the term merit, which is not one that we often use. But this idea of merit is credit. It's something that, that you earned. We have nothing, no credit. We have nothing that we earned. Everything is according to Christ. All sufficient. There's nothing lacking. It all comes from Christ.